Okay, and welcome to those who are joining us online as well. Uh, we're in, well, I think it's part, about part number seven of our walk through Mark's Gospel this year. And uh, Dan is going to bring us the Bible reading for this morning. All right, so, hello? Hello, hello? So Let me just check. Should be, one, two, number one, mic one. Uh, you might be on, are you on master? One, two, one, two. There we go. Cool. So I'm reading from Mark chapter 2, verse 18 through to 3, verse 6. Once when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus and asked, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? Jesus replied, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them, but someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins, for the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of grain to eat. But the Pharisees said to Jesus, Look, why, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Jesus said to them, Haven't you ever read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God during the days of Abiathar the high priest and broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests were allowed to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. But Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, Come and stand in front of everyone. Then he turned to his critics and asked, Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath, or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Then he said to the man, Hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. At once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Alrighty. I've, uh, I've just been so aware this, this week um, that the, the meaning and the significance in these passages is so, so rich and that no, no words that I could put together could really unpack and communicate this. Um, but I, um, So I just want to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to be the one who, who teaches us this morning and ministers to us. Father, thank you so much for, for Jesus most of all. Thank you that we have the scriptures that we would come to know Jesus and his heart and his love 
and his uh, amazing power and authority that comes through the extravagant love and grace that he showed, most of all through his sacrifice made for us. But Lord, as we study his life this week and this month and this year, I, I just pray that somehow the significance of everything he said and did and how profound that is to us, this living word that we have in front of us, that somehow you would show us how it applies and transforms our lives on an individual level, on a family level, on a community level, and throughout this city, nation and world. We just give you this time to... uh, Let our hearts and our minds be transformed by you as we trust in your spirit to teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what we've read today, and we're in chapter 3 now, by the way, that was part end of chapter 2 and chapter 3. I did say we'd speed it up a little bit as we got going. Uh, 16 chapters in Mark's Gospel, we're we're walking through them slowly this year, and uh, What we've read today is two interactions between Jesus and some others on some similar issues. Um, One of them is the the fasting issue, Jewish tradition of of fasting and how people thought that should be observed. And then there's the Sabbath, um, similar thing. And then there's an, an explicit way that Jesus displays his stance on this Sabbath issue in the synagogue, healing this man's hand. And um, there's some fascinating religious and cultural context to these events. So, you know, when a group of people ask Jesus, why aren't your disciples doing this? Why aren't they fasting? Why? That, it, it's not because their Bible, their Old Test- the Old Testament, which was their Bible at the time, was sort of laying out very specifically that you must do this, you must do that. It was all of these, these other rules and restrictions and things that they had put around what God's word to them said. And it's the same with the Sabbath as well. When they say, why are, they work- why are you doing this on the Sabbath? Why are you picking the heads of grain? Uh, there was not this, you know, thou shalt not do the following on the Sabbath in, in the Bible for them. It just said, work six days, rest one. And um, it had become, to the Jews, especially to the Pharisees, this hot topic of conversation where it was, there were schools of thought, well, you should do it this way, well, we think that the way you're supposed to obey God's word here is this, 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 this. And it was this ongoing thing and there's these exchanges that happen where they're kind of challenging Jesus, well, why aren't you doing this, but also maybe to get out of him, what's your thinking, Jesus? Do you want to add your opinion as a rabbi to this, to this conversation and this thing, this whole issue that's going on? And in both of these exchanges, Jesus does something a bit unexpected. He doesn't enter into the conversation with another school of thought. Well, I think you're supposed to do it this way. Or I th-. He actually says, basically, you guys are in the wrong playing field altogether right now. What you're trying to draw out of me, I'm not taking the bait. You're trying to obey God by doing stuff that he never asked of you. You've made all these things up. I'm not going to take the bait and add my little bit of law onto your game here. And, and, And basically Jesus says, fasting has a purpose, sure. So does feasting. Thank goodness for that, right? Celebrating. Sabbath, 
This, this rest concept so important to the Jews and, and in the Scriptures as a whole. It has a purpose. It's for human beings, for their blessing. It's been established for good. But both of these things, these things that have a purpose, these traditions, these, these practices, they revolve around me, Jesus says. I don't revolve around them. And, and in the final event of what we just read, I know there was a lot in the, in the reading today, but in the final event, he basically shows them he has authority over the Sabbath. He determines what it can and can't be used for, and he says it's a day for good. This is what it's for. It's for good. Now, up until this point in Mark chapters 1 and 2 that we've, we've now covered, uh, Jesus has been establishing his authority Remember the Greek word, exousia? I like that word. Exousia, authority. He has it over the spirit realm in casting out demons. He has it over the physical realm in healing the sick. He, we read that he's, he taught with authority. He announces his authority to forgive sins. Now he's saying, I have authority over biblical commands and Jewish traditions and their practice. Authority, authority, authority. I have authority. And now there's a theme that's developing Jesus being established as one who has the say. He has the authority, the exousia. And he hasn't wanted the miracle stuff to become really public and known. So all of a sudden he's become as a, known as a miracle worker. But as this stuff begins to arise, it's more about our connection with God. Stuff like sin, forgiveness and ritual and tradition and, and, and prayer and biblical commands and practices. Now he's starting to say, I do want it known. I do want it known that I have authority over these things. And it's most clearly seen in the line uh, that was about halfway through today. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Um, as I mentioned a second ago, last week we sung that wonderful song, Jesus is the mighty, mighty King. Jesus is... The mighty, mighty, yeah, very good. We won't go all the way through it. Otherwise, it'll be stuck in your head for another week. Uh, he's the boss of everything. He's Lord, he's master, he's the king. And this is something that Mark, in his gospel, is unpacking. Jesus is established as the king, the Lord, the Messiah. But reading and studying these passages this week with this song stuck in my head again for another week, Jesus is the mighty, mighty king, he's the boss, I was kind of forced to ask myself, is this true in my life? Is this really the reality of every element of my existence that Jesus is Lord, that he's the leader, that he's the boss? The word Lord in the New Testament, is, um, it's the Greek word kyrios, and it, it sometimes is translated as master. So what does it mean when we say Jesus is Lord? Well, it's it's kind of it's definitely not just he's kind of a guide and a and a and a, and a teacher and, and and that kind of thing. Um, but sometimes if we think of someone as the boss, we might think of them in a kind of negative term. All I would say with well, what does it mean Jesus is Lord is that in our English translations of the Bible, that when we see the word Lord in the Old Testament, it's referring to God. Now that's because they had this kind of habit of, of when God's name, Yahweh, was used, they would replace that with Adonai, which means Lord, and then so we get it translated and it says Lord, but I mean there is some substantial connection between someone being Lord and them being God. Jesus 
is to declare that Jesus is Lord is a significant thing. That he has the authority, but also that he deserves the authority. And I pray that what we come away from today believing is that it is good that Jesus is Lord. And that it is good when Jesus is Lord. When we make him intentionally the Lord of our lives in every area. First of all, just to do a little bit of, uh, I guess, Bible study here. What is Jesus really saying about himself? Is this the point he's really trying to make? Well, there's a couple of things that are, I think, just really interesting. One is that when he points back to King David, notice that in the text, he says, well, this is what David did in the, in the temple. He took the bread, gave it to his companions. Um, he's sort of saying that because David was the king. David had authority. David had this kingly right to do kind of what he wanted. And, then, um, and, and so Jesus is pointing back to him to sort of point to himself and say, just in a subtle kind of way, I have a Davidic Authority. I have a kingly authority here, guys. And then a little after that, he says, he uses this term for himself for the second time in Mark's gospel that he is the Son of Man. Now, last week when, I, when we came across that term, I didn't go back to the reference that's being made here, which is to the book of Daniel. In chapter 7, when Daniel writes about a vision from God, he refers to the Son of Man. Have a listen to this. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one, that's referring to God, and was led into his presence, this son of man. He was given authority, honour and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal and it will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Isn't that amazing? And nice, gentle Jesus, who doesn't really want to ruffle any feathers, ha ha ha, says, The Son of Man, that's me, is Lord. Even over the Sabbath, that really important commandment that you, commandment that you guys have been agonizing over for for years as to how you're to obey God with this. He says, he says, I'm the real deal, guys. I'm the boss here. The Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. But then he shows it tangibly in the, in the synagogue. And he shows them, I'm not Lord and that I'm going to take it away and I'm just going to destroy you all and you've got to do it like I'm going to put you as my slaves. He says, let me show you what my lordship, what my kingdom is like. It's to bless, to heal, to save. And he heals this man. He turns what he is Lord over around for good, what it was meant for. So why is it that Mark points out that Jesus looked around at them angrily. I don't know if you noticed this line. Jesus looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Because what drove them was the tradition, the laws upon laws. Essentially, it was the restrictions. It wasn't the blessing. It wasn't the good that was meant by the Sabbath and things like fasting and feasting. It was the restrictions they put on people, these old wineskins that had become their masters. 
So the question I think we are to ask ourselves today from these passages is, who or what do we serve? Who is our Lord? For the, uh, for the Pharisees, Jesus was, was making this very clear point to them. He said, you guys have made rules, your master. I mean, it, it was either that or they were kind of trying to use the rules to manipulate people so that they would kind of master other people. Either way, they've got it, they've got it completely wrong. And I, I've always, this verse from Matthew 23 has always stuck with me where Jesus, um, nice, meek, gentle Jesus, says to um, the Pharisees, you cross land and sea to make one convert and then you turn them into twice as much a child of hell as you are. Do you remember that one? You, you cross land and sea to make a single convert, then you turn them into twice the child of hell you are. That's full on. I, don't want, I wouldn't want to be in Jesus', Jesus um, path, you know, him saying that to me. But the message is not so much, look, don't be like the Pharisees. I mean, we, we hopefully don't, we should not be like the Pharisees. We don't want to have Jesus coming and saying, you, you, are, you are really turning people the wrong way. But the problem with the Pharisees' message, going back to what I was saying, is that it was restriction. It was the don't that was their problem. They just wanted to impose on people, don't do this, don't do that. To obey the law, you've got to don't do this, don't do that. This is the way you have to live. And Jesus, by his Spirit, I believe, is saying to us today something quite different. He doesn't want us to live with a restriction mentality, but simply to choose him as Lord. Not to live our life trying to seek after God, going, we must not do this and we must not do that, we must not do this, but that we must serve him and that in that is good. In that we find joy. I'm reading a book at the moment called... um, the burden is light, which is a really good thing to be reminded of. Jesus said, um, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Um, take my yoke upon you. And uh, I was really struck by these words as I'm sort of trying to learn for myself what it means to live without this burden and to put that on Jesus and to let him carry the load. Uh, what John Tyson says is this, an idol is anything that we look to and trust in for significance and worth more than we do God. We often believe that sex, money, power, security, stable relationships, recognition in our field, bear in mind these are all good things mostly, recognition in our field, well-behaved children, having the right address or moving to a new city, we believe these things will heal us. When we look to these things rather than to God for our salvation, they become idols. And all idolatry results in Slavery, for idols, this is the bit that really struck me, for idols are harsh and demanding masters. Things that we put in the place of God to serve, they are not good to us, even if they are good things themselves. And what God wants to show us is that we ought to turn back the things that we make our masters and idolise, to turn them back to him, As a good gift. A good gift, but not something to be worshipped. I love the end of the story. 
that we read today. The end of this kind of section, which, which um, I know it's broken back down into between chapters 2 and 3, but essentially what happens is that Jesus comes into the synagogue and it's still the Sabbath. And they've just been saying, Jesus, why aren't your disciples doing this on the Sabbath? Because, you know, we've been discussing this for a lot of years now. You're supposed to obey God through the Sabbath like this. And Jesus basically says, look, you've been making this law, this commandment, this thing, and all the stuff you've heaped upon it, you've been making this either the way to get to God or the what, what you're supposed to do. It's mastered you, and you're trying to use it to master others. And what he does is he goes, I'm going to turn it back to God as a good gift and a thing, a day on which good is to be done, not worship it, but I'm going to use it for good. Do you catch that? This thing that they have idolised, he says, is it for evil to be done? No, 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 it's for good. And he uses the Sabbath to heal a man, to bring restoration, to bring healing. When I write down the things in my own life that have become my Lord, have become idols, what I need to do, I have realised, and I am still realising a lot of the time, most of the time I don't get this right, but what we need to do is turn them back to God as a good gift that he has given. Not worship them, not idolise them, but say, God, these are gifts from you, and I make you my Lord again. And thank you for them. I wrote down a few things this week that um, I think have often become idols in my own life. One is the opinions of others. Sometimes it's those I respect most. And so God challenges me and has been challenging me, don't idolise other people. Thank me for them as gifts in your life because all of you are gifts to me and all of us are gifts to you. We're gifts to one another in the relationships we have not to be idolised or overvalued, but to turn one another to God and say, God, thank you for the people we serve with. But I come to you for my recognition. I come to you for the value that I need in my life. That's one of the, the idols that I wrote down. Another one might be a position that I hold, uh, like of, of leadership, for example, to try and fulfil the position that I have adequately rather than coming to God and going, God, I serve you first and you work through me and that's all and that's enough. And so to turn that back to God and say, God, thank you for the gift of being able to serve you like I serve you. I thank you for it, but I live to please only you. Another idol in my life at times is money. Anybody else idolise money? What about if you put it this way, that when we allow finances to be the provider of what we need, I mean, that's, that's what money is, right? It, it, it is the provider. It provides for us what we need, except when we serve God, and then God is the provider of what we need. And so maybe it's to turn back money and finances and resources to God in, in a practical way. This is what Jesus did in the synagogue. He turned back the Sabbath to be a gift from God to do good in a practical way. He used it to do good. Maybe the way of turning our, our worship from finance and resource towards God is to use that gift in a practical way for good. 
to, to start to say, God, I have all I need from you, therefore I'll give some of what I need away to do good or I'll use it to serve others or whatever that might be. Maybe there's a practical way that we can... I know that's, that's been significant in my life. Uh, other things, just quickly, that I wrote down that I tend to worship would be the future, the vision of what I see, and so I, that's what drives me forward as opposed to my Lord stepping, showing me one step at a time. Intellectual stimulation, I can just kind of intellectually rationalise my way to success or whatever else. That can be a Lord and a master. You know what? This one's, this one's hard because it's sort of so subtle, but even practices like devotion to God in prayer and reading the Bible, I think, can actually become our Lord. I'm a good Christian today, God, because I read my Bible and prayed before the sun came up. It can actually master us. Even good things like the gift of his word in our life, I, um, I also asked Karen to tell me what she thought might be competing lords in my life, um, just to see what I might be missing. She, wrote down, she, she said to me, uh, success, approval, uh, tasks or responsibilities, financial security, um, Apple products and coffee. Now, I'm <laughs> sure she was joking with the last two, though. And then she highlighted this one in particular. The approval of people you respect or people whose opinions matter to you for whatever reason when it should be Jesus. Went, yep. And I think that might actually be at the root of idolatry for many of us, not just an idol among many. Now, I don't think any of us sit down and we kind of... I don't think any of us just go, you know what, I, I really hope that in 10 years' time I... We'll rely more on money than God. I'll find my value in the opinions of other people. I'll have a horrible marriage or relationship with others because I'm selfish. Uh, I really hope that I'll, I'll have at least one or two destructive habits and that I'll find it really hard to connect with God. I mean, I don't think any of us sit down hoping that that's where we'll be in five or ten years' time. But it's not that we want to be there. It's that when we don't intentionally choose the narrow path, we drift there. And I love that the solution Jesus offers, the offer he comes to us with, is not like the Pharisees. It's not, don't do this, don't do that, don't smoke this, don't drink that, in order to get your life together. The offer that Jesus has is, come to me. Come to me. Serve me, listen to me, make me Lord. He says, I want to be Lord over all of your life. You know, I've never really fully grasped the whole the wine and the wineskins passage, the old cloth, new cloth, the thing that we read today. I don't think I've ever really fully grasped it, but it's maybe starting to make sense and sink in a little bit. Uh, this is what I wrote down, that if our lives are old clothes... That, that if our lives are kind of full of holes, they're not getting any better, uh, and, and our lives are full of age-old habits that just leave us wanting, Jesus is not about to come and kind of patch us up. Oh, a little bit of a something missing in my life there, or patch it up with Jesus. Just add a little bit of Jesus to this and that. The holes uh, in our broken lives will just stay the same if we try to do that, and the tear is just going to get bigger. This is what the analogy is saying. He's not willing to just be a little bit of our lives. 
a little bit of Jesus stuck on here and a little bit of Jesus stuck on there or thrown in here. He wants to be everything. He wants to give us a new, new clothing, a new wineskin that he may fill. And in this account that we read today, the old cloth and the old wineskin is religious traditions and religious practices as a way to God that they were trying to form. But Jesus is not coming to, to tweak that and just make it a little bit better. And similarly with anything that can steal our devotion. It doesn't necessarily need to be religious practice and traditions and things. Anything can direct our time and our money and our decisions, our words and our actions. Anything can be our Lord. But Jesus wants it to be him. And you know what? I've got another section which I've mostly covered. So I just want to finish with this today. John 15. He says this, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. And then he says this. This is just so profound. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. There's something about making Jesus Lord that means we don't experience the harsh and slave-bringing master feeling. I didn't say that very well. You know that, that quote I said where it says, all these other idols, all these things that we make Lord, they are harsh and demanding masters. The only one that's different, the only Lord and leader of our life that will actually bring us the opposite and that is joy, is Jesus. And so what areas of your life need you to turn around and face Jesus? To say, Jesus, be Lord. It might be, uh, it might be that it's work. That, there's, there's, that, that work has become your Lord and your idol, finding meaning in that. And so turning that around practically and facing it to Jesus by saying, Jesus, all I have uh, to do is, is, is serve you. I'm looking for uh, you to be the one I find my recognition from. It may be time and practically saying, well, you know what, I've got 1,440 minutes in every single day and so I'm going to turn them back as a gift to you and in a practical way I'm going to write a block on my calendar that says sitting down with the Lord. It might be money, it might be any of those things that I mentioned before that I know can be idols, uh, false masters in my life. A friend of mine said to me this week, and I'll finish with this, you know the restful thing about Jesus being Lord? We don't need to work it out. You know the restful thing about Jesus being Lord is that we don't need to work it out. He's got it all under control. And I just want to pray today that as that very slowly sinks into my life, and I know I've got a lot to learn and a long way to go. I pray it would sink into each one of our lives in every area of our life that he would indeed be Lord. Father, thank you so much that you have given all dominion and authority and power to Jesus. 
that every race and nation and language would obey him, that his rule is eternal, it will never end, and his kingdom will never be destroyed. And thank you, Lord, that the kingdom that Jesus has brought is one of love, is one of grace, is one of freedom and of joy. And that we have the chance to experience that in this life, that you are sanctifying us now to prepare us for the life to come. Father, I pray that as we sing this next song about your extravagant love, that we would be reminded that you are good, that you want to bring joy to our lives, to not, for there not to be harsh and demanding masters ruling us, whatever that may be, but that we would turn away from the good things you've given us when we let them master us and instead practically turn them back to you as good gifts and things we can be grateful for. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the team's going to lead us in... uh